Hello, you are listening to the Bethel Atlanta Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information about Bethel Atlanta, visit www.bethelatlanta.com. Ah, thanks guys. Thank you, thank you. Awesome. All right, well, if I sound just a little bit hoarse, it's because I've been talking a lot this weekend. Uh, we just had a Seeing in the Spirit workshop. How many of you were at that? Awesome. Hello. Welcome. Nobody over here? It's okay. <laughs> awesome. Well, uh, I'd like to dive right in today. I'd like to do a little, little Bible study today. Is that okay with you guys? Okay. So if you uh, have a Bible, go ahead and turn in it. If you have a phone, you can turn that into a Bible pretty easily. Um, we're going to go to Matthew 25. Matthew 25. Now, I, I love the parables of Jesus. I've always really loved storytelling, and Jesus was a master storyteller. He was really good at, at, at creating these stories that revealed the nature of the kingdom of God. And so a lot of my, uh, a lot of the spaces that I try to pay the most attention to in the parables of Jesus are specifically the ones that say the kingdom of heaven is like. Obviously, they're all extremely valuable, but just for kind of my, my lens, those are ones I'm really looking toward, I'm really wanting to learn from. And so this particular parable is in kind of a little machine gun, boom, boom, boom series of the kingdom of heaven is like, the kingdom of heaven is like uh, parables. And so let's just kind of take a minute here and read through this together. I know this is maybe more verses at once than you might be accustomed to, but I believe in you. Uh, and it's all in red, so that means we, we ought to pay attention. So uh, Matthew 25, <clears throat> we're going to start at verse 14. This is the parable of the talents. So uh, verse 14, it says, For it is just like, and this is, again, this is in the series of the kingdom of heaven is like, the kingdom of heaven is like, it is just like. So he's continuing this, this uh, line of dialogue here. Uh, For it is just like a man about to go on a journey who called his own slaves and entrusted his, his possessions to them. Now, quick cultural note here. Um, some versions say servant, some versions say slave. Um, in this particular time in history, under Roman law, there was a form of slavery that kind of came about two different ways generally. There was uh, a, a kind of indentured servitude where like, hey, I have this debt that I can't pay, so I'm going to work for you until I pay it off. It was actually kind of like a safety net for if you just really got in a bad situation and got you know, swamped with debt. Um, and there was also uh, war slavery. So like, oh, I'm going to go conquer these people, and I take a certain number of people to work for us for a certain number of years, and then go back to their country. It's usually how that went. Um, again, that, that's a word that's meant different things over the years. Just want to give a little bit of cultural context to what that means because it helps clarify the relationship that's being talked about in this here. So I, I will somewhat, I will, in my version here, um, which is the NESB, it says slave, but when I'm talking about it, I might say servant because they're, they're really close and so they interpret it different ways different times. Just FYI. Um, like I said, Bible study. Um, he called his own slaves and entrusted his possessions to them. To one, verse 15, to one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, each according to his own ability. Now, they've done different math on this at different times, but it's, the, the gist of it is that it's a lot of money. It's one talent was about, 50, uh, kind of where they're at now is like one talent is about 15 years worth of wages for like a laborer. So a relatively low wage, but 15 years worth. So a good chunk of money. 
is the general idea. The one who had received the five talents immediately went and did business with them and earned five more talents. In the same way, the one who had received the two talents earned two more. But he who received the one talent went away and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. The one who had received the five talents came up and brought five more talents, saying, Master, you entrusted five talents to, to me. See, I have earned five more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You are faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter the joy of your master. Also, the one who had received the two talents came up and said, Master, you entrusted two talents to me. See, I have earned two more talents. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful slave. You are faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter the joy of your master. Now the one who had received the one talent also came up and said, master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you did not scatter seed. And I was afraid, so I went away and hid your talent in the ground. See, you still have what is yours. But his master answered and said to him, you worthless, lazy slave. I assume he said it in that tone. Um, <laughs> did, you know that I re did you know that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I did not scatter seed? Then you ought to have put my money in the bank on my arrival. I would have received my money back with interest. Therefore, take the talent away from him and give it to the one who has the ten talents. For everyone who has, more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. And throw the worthless slave into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be gnashing, weeping and gnashing of teeth. <laughs> the kingdom of heaven is like... Oh, well, gosh... This is that's yeah, kind of interesting. Like, uh, you know, so if we maybe just take this at face value, or at least the way that I hear it taught most frequently, this is a kind of a talking of the principle of, you know, God gives us all potential. He gives us all talents. You know, fun little play on words there. If you want to force that, um, the he gives us all different gifts. He gives us all different ability, different potential. And, you know, uh, recognizing that we all have different starting point, but he does want us to do something with it and wants to do something valuable. Uh, otherwise, he'll throw us out into the darkness where there's gnashing of teeth. Huh. That's, uh, that's interesting. That's tricky when we, we, especially in our environment, we talk about God being good and being kind and, and grace and all these wonderful things. And then it's like, oh, if I don't do good enough, you're going to throw me out. Huh. Well, you know, thankfully, this parable shows up in, in another book of the Bible, different gospel, and it's, uh, when you kind of, as we get into it, you'll see, uh, maybe this is like a different time that he said this story, because some of the details are different, but the, the overall point is the same. So maybe, maybe this, this version will, you know, maybe bring some clarity. So if you want to flip over to the, uh, to the book of Luke, chapter 19, maybe this will help us out, you know. This is kind of an expanded version as well. It's got a little bit more extra detail. So hopefully, hopefully this will bring uh, peace and comfort to our souls. <laughs> All right, so Luke 19, just a hop, skip, and a jump from where we were. <coughs> so 
Now, there's a couple things with this. This is um, a, a portion of Luke that is kind of described as the, the journey toward Jerusalem. So this is Jesus on his trajectory toward, toward the cross, really. And he's uh, foreshadowing that a lot throughout these different stories. Zacchaeus is kind of right before this and other, other yeah, little, little moments where he keeps foreshadowing what's going to be happening there. And so this version of this parable has um, some kind of added content that talks about that aspect of what he's, what he's doing. Now, again, it's important to remember that Jesus functioned as a, a traveling rabbi when, when he was on earth. So he had his disciples. He would travel from town to town teaching, preaching. And so there's a good chance that these parables, he didn't just say them once, that he would repeat them, he would use them again. And like a lot of uh, teachers, even today, sometimes you will, because it's an example, because it's just a story, you'll adjust details you know, to, to kind of emphasize a different aspect of what you're trying to say. Now, what's handy is because this is a similar story, and, and, but with some different you know, nuance to it, it's, it's helpful to see which details are a little bit flexible and can change and which details remain very close to the same because that can help us understand the main point a little bit better. It's a good little trick you can do. Anyway, so uh, we are in Luke 19. We're going to start with verse 12. And so he said, A nobleman went to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and then to return. And he called ten of his own slaves and gave them ten minus now, just for your FYI, a minus is like 100 days wages for a laborer, so significantly less money, but still kind of a lot of money. And so, okay, maybe the exact amount of money is not important, but it's a chunk of money given to these folks, so just, just an FYI. Um, he called 10 of his own slaves and gave them 10 minus and said to do business with this money until I come back. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned after receiving the kingdom, he ordered that these slaves to whom he had given the money be summoned to him so that he would learn how much they had made by the business they had done. The first slave appeared, saying, Master, your mina has been made ten minus more. And he said to him, Well done, good slave. Since you have been faithful in a very little thing, you are to have authority over ten cities. The second one came, saying, Your mina, master, has made five minas. And he said to him also, you are to be over five cities. And then another came saying, Master, here is your mina, which I kept tucked away in a handkerchief. At least it wasn't covered in dirt this time. Um, unless it was a used handkerchief, though. So anyway, <laughs> not part of the story, but uh, <laughs> verse 21. For I was afraid of you because you are a demanding man. You take up what you did not lay down and you reap what you did not sow. He said to him, from your own lips, I will judge you, you worthless slave. Did you know that I am a demanding man, taking up what I did not lay down and reaping what I did not sow? And so why did you not put my money in the bank? And when I came back, I would have collected it with interest. Likes this bank idea. Um, Verse 24, and then he said to the other slaves who were present, take the mina away from him and give it to the one who has 10 minas. And they said to him, Master, he already has 10 minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more shall be given. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them in my presence. Ah, not as helpful as I would have hoped. Uh, huh. 
So we, we don't have time to get into all the layers that are going on here because this is also talking about to some extent what's going to uh, happen when he gets to Jerusalem and how he's get it, get, going to be rejected and all, all that part of the story. And there's a whole thing we could get into there, but I really wanna, for, for our purposes today, focus on this parable. And so there's a piece of this parable in the middle of this story here, and then there's the parable in Matthew. Now, we have things that are similar. We have chunks of money that are given to these trusted servants, to these, to these slaves. And, um, you know, in the first one, there's descending amounts of money. In the second one, the same amount of money, but different amounts are earned. Now, um, again, Jesus was a master storyteller. And this parable has something in it, a, a literary device that's called a, uh, there's a lot of terms for it, but the one that I like is a narrative turn. A narrative term. A lot of time in movies and other uh, narrative things, things happen in threes. And because three is the quickest, is the shortest, most efficient way to make a pattern. And so we have a pat, we have three where two are the same or similar, and then one is suddenly different. There is a narrative turn. A narrative turn can happen a lot of different ways. You know, it's the, uh, all of a sudden, the guy who's been your helpful guide this entire time pulls out the gun and says, ha-ha, I'm working for Dr. Bad Guy. <laughs> um, you know, a narrative turn. All of a sudden, what I thought was one thing is suddenly another thing. So you want to pay attention to a narrative turn because when there's a, especially when there's a three-part pattern, the first two steps of the pattern are meant to establish the norm, the baseline, and then the turn is meant to reveal, that's kind of where the, the tipping point of the story is going to be. So, where is the tipping point and when does it start? If, if you, uh, you don't need to flip back there if you don't want to, but if you go back to the Matthew version, we, uh, let me see. Now, it says, going, his master said to him, well done, good and faithful slave. You are faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. So that's the second servant. Did a good job. I'm going to put you in charge of things. You're blessed. So now the one who received the one talent also came up and said, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you did not gather, uh, where you did not scatter seed. Our instinct and our perspective tends to make us think of the narrative turn being the sudden harsh response that comes from the master. But in reality, the divergence from the pattern and the narrative turn comes from the perspective that this servant had. Because what motivated his action? He reveals it here. What motivated him to bury this thing? I knew you to be a hard man. And we get clues in both versions of the narrative that um, are evidence toward this being an incorrect assumption. In here, it says, did you know me to be a harsh man? Question mark. Is that what you know? In the second version, it's even more explicit. By your own words, I will judge you. I will meet your expectations. <laughs> <laughs> now, when, when we're studying the Bible, we have to be careful. We, we, we have to recognize that all of us want the Bible to do something. We want it to say something. And so you, gotta, and you have to acknowledge it's almost impossible for you to not try to do that. 
you, you can try not to do that, but it's almost impossible, so that's why we get to work together on this, you know? And so, so you gotta be careful, you gotta do as good as you can, and obviously, I want this to be nice. <laughs> so there's, there's, there's two, there's kind of two approaches that I think um, offer the same revelation, but a slightly different outcome. So there's two approaches here. With a dramatic narrative turn like that, with suddenly things being turned on their head, with the, the master in both stories suddenly behaving very generously, I'm gonna give you tons of money and trust you with it completely, and then go away and come back and check on how it's going, to suddenly very harsh, very strict, harsh punishment both times, both also to the people that he was sent to in the second story. No sign, they didn't receive him, but there's no sign of negative intent. Then all of a sudden on the other side, boom, strong negative intent. So there's two ways of interpreting this. Um, there's probably 89, but here's two of them. Um, either this is a narrative that's intended to show a fault, how effective a false understanding of God's nature is on our experience of his nature. Meaning that if I have this perspective, all of a sudden you look like this bad guy who's harsh. And so therefore in that version, this harshness is not true. This is actually the image that is in this person's head. Now, it could also be taken that, hey, this is how important it is to do something meaningful with what I've given you, and this is what it costs. In which case these consequences are still the consequences. You know, so there's two different ways of looking at it, but in either case, the tipping point is the expectation that the servant had towards the master. Does that make sense? So in either, in either interpretation, at least in my view, the, the key, one of the key messages of this parable, and all Jesus' parables have, have multiple dimensions to them, but one of the key messages of this parable is the way that I think about God and what I believe about his nature will greatly affect how I respond to the way that he treats me and the outcome that I'll receive at the end. So let's just um, spend a little bit of time unpacking that for a second. So what does that mean? Okay, we're in a culture that teaches God is good, you know, but if we just kind of, you know, generally believe these things and don't look at individual parts of our life or our belief system, we can miss how maybe old mindset or, you know, things that we learn from our childhood experience uh, influence the way that we expect to be received, the way we expect to be treated, how we receive this input of someone putting responsibility in your hands, giving you these, this large amount of money, hey, do something with this. How do we experience and receive that? And so let's just apply this to a couple different things for a second. So let's just see what thinking of a harsh master does to our way of thinking. And there's, there's lots of examples you could do with this, but here's just a few of them. So let's take, you ever heard the phrase, God has a plan for your life? Fewer yeses than I expected, but uh, I assume that it was just obvious. Um, the, uh, so God has a plan for your life. That's a good thing that I believe. Ah, but what does that mean? That is a good thing. That is, that, is, that is money in the bank. That is an investment into you. God has a plan for your life. Well, if we have the harsh master view of God has a plan for your life, we view it in a very, in my opinion, human sense of that means there is one correct path through my life. 
That means I, he has a good plan, he has things he wants me to do, things he wants me to accomplish, and if I don't do those things, then I'm failing his plan. You know, in this mindset, you know, it's like, okay, Lord, what do you want me to do today? Should I go to, should I go to McDonald's or Wednesdays? You know, which one is, it's, it, you know, it's, again, it's kind of a, it's silly, but if he has a perfect plan for our life, what if you're supposed to meet someone you're supposed to minister to at the Wendy's, and then, you know, you miss that person, that person goes to hell, and it's your fault. <laughs> I mean, we laugh, but if there's a perfect plan, right? And the right answer is Chick-fil-A. Um, <laughs> or it's not, because they're already saved there. <laughs> I hope you know that I'm joking, just to be very clear. Um, but, but again, we, we laugh and it's funny. But if it is true that he has a perfect plan for my life, doesn't every little choice matter? Doesn't, does me being five minutes late to this church service make a difference of whether I meet my destiny or miss my destiny? Does, does me, uh, you know, does me being, having a hard day and being rude to someone that I could have been nice to totally change the trajectory of life? I mean, right, it does. It'd have to, of course it does. <laughs> You're scared to answer, I understand. Um, <laughs> now, <laughs> So if instead we step away from that harsh master, we can look at the wider narrative. We can see uh, a book full of mostly failure. <laughs> if you look at the story of the human beings that are in this book, all of them fail. <laughs> Usually many times in a row. <laughs> it's true. And so okay, the Bible repeatedly says my choices do matter, but also there's this, this, this accommodation for the reality of our nature that God has for us. And this idea of like, okay, there's one right path, there's one good path, is a little funny to me because in God's perfect garden that he created at the beginning, there was one bad choice and a million good choices. Uh, they're excited. Um, there was one tree you were not supposed to eat from and eat from any other tree in the garden. And I, I tend to think that that's more God's plan. Not that we follow this perfect, it, to be blunt, it's a very human way of thinking that everything has to be right in order in perfect plan. And in that, if you study the, anytime you run into heat, the word perfect in um, the Old Testament, oh, thank you good and faithful servant. <laughs> Looks like John's getting 10 cities. Um, <laughs> I am not Jesus, to be clear. <laughs> um, there, there was a, a million good choices and, and one bad choice. And if we have this mindset, it's a very human mindset of, Perfect means everything exactly the way it is supposed to be. If you look, anytime you see the, almost every time you see the word, the word perfect in the Old Testament, the Hebrew root is much more related to the word complete than it is perfect. We think of perfect as pristine, as flawless, as, as without, it's, it's your phone when you first get it, and then, you know, your little nephew is like, ooh, a fork, wah, you know, and it is not, it's not perfect anymore, right? Well, 
in a manner of speaking, the more Hebrew idea of perfect is that old battered beat up phone that cuts your face when you try to make a phone call that you're turning in and it has served its purpose and now you're getting your brand new phone. You know, this analogy is falling apart, but <laughs> it's complete. It has served its purpose. The original commission was go subdue the earth, multiply, perpetuate this garden is, is a way of seeing that. And so in that model, anything that perpetuates the kingdom of heaven on earth is God's plan for your life. <laughs> yeah? <laughs> but if he's a harsh master, we're scared to mess that up. And being scared to mess that up actually messes that up. That's kind of the point of this parable, <laughs> being scared to mess up with the potential that he's given you, viewing him as this harsh master that's going to punish you, who takes what doesn't belong to him, who, who reaps what he doesn't sow. Even that phrase, there's kind of two different ways of, uh, commonly of looking at it. It's either he's harsh in the sense of he takes what doesn't belong to him and, and take, you know, that kind of view, or it's this idea of this, you're so much better than me of even in these places where you haven't worked, you still produce, you know, how could I possibly compare to you? Either one are these harsh pictures of like, I, I couldn't possibly live up to your standards and expectations because that's the viewpoint. So, you know, then what do we, what do, we do? So that, that's the idea of like how it affects our, our, uh, God, our view of God's plan. What about these other aspects? So how does, this, how does this idea of God being a harsh master, how does it affect our discernment? This gift of discernment that God's given us. We can discern what's, what's, what's going on, who's, who's a good guy, who's a bad guy, you know, all, all that useful stuff that that's the exact intended use for. Um, <laughs> the, um, we can use our discernment to try to figure out what's wrong so that we can fix it, which is, of course, the message of the gospel. That we could figure out what's wrong so that we could fix it. Hashtag sarcasm. <laughs> uh, a huge reason for the purpose of the entire history that we get to carry of the Old Testament is God's chosen people with his presence living among them, with the, with the direction and law and the, and the way of life set before them, could not do it. Could not do it on their own. They needed a Messiah. They needed a Savior. They needed grace, not grace as a thing that just paints over all our problems, but is the operational power of God in our life to become the thing that he's called us to be. But if we have this harsh master view, okay, I, I, have these, I have this discernment so I can figure out what's wrong with me, what's wrong with you, what's wrong with this person, that person, that country, that church, so that we can fix it. Because if you know it, then you'll be able to fix it. It's not the story. The wisest man on earth made a lot of unwise choices. Solomon. Mm. A man after God's own heart made some, a series of terrible choices with brutal consequences that lasted generations. 
Again, this is not to, to beat ourselves up. This is to acknowledge our need for a savior, a need for grace. If instead I don't have this harsh master view, then I don't view these tools as ways to get it done myself, ways to do it well enough, ways to accomplish well enough. I recognize these, these are tools for understanding where I need grace, where, where I need the operational power of God to change behavior, to change things. It's designed to give me grace for other people rather than a good list of reasons to say bad things about them on Facebook. Facebook, you know, it's, it doesn't matter if those things are true if they don't carry grace with them, you know? It doesn't make them not true, to be clear. But if there's no grace and there's no operational power of God, and we can get into whole the difference between grace and mercy, that's a, a long talk, but um, we, don't, we don't have time for that one today. So that, um, how does this harsh master idea uh, affect the way that we approach the gift of the prophetic. How does, that, how does that change the way that we use this gift? Well, you know, well, you know, we have this harsh master, we gotta get stuff done for him, and so that means I need clear instruction about where to go, what to do, and who I'm supposed to be, so that I can, be, so that I can work really hard to become that person, so that I can uh, find my identity by doing God stuff. That's also not the gospel. The gospel is that you were adopted into a family. You, were, you, you stepped into an inheritance that you could not earn and did not earn. And not, you do not have a destiny so that you can have an identity. You have an identity which creates a destiny. Does that make sense? And when we're prophesying, we're not saying you're gonna do this awesome thing which is gonna make you feel awesome and be awesome. We're saying you're awesome and this is what your awesomeness looks like. <laughs> this is what God's glory, God's grace in your life looks like on the earth, in your future. This is what the beauty, the potential, the, 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 the operational power of God looks like applied in your life. This is what I see, this is the corner of it that I see. Are you seeing this, this difference? Are you seeing how this can affect more things? Are you seeing how the way that we perceive God can um, dramatically affect our lives? Yeah? Um, I'm gonna share this one uh, singing the spirit type story. Um, if you're new around here, uh, I've seen angels since I was a little kid. It's part of my story. Surprise. If you're at the workshop, you're way too aware of this at this point. So uh, there's one day I was, um, I was at church in uh, Bethel in, in Reading and it was a Sunday night service. And all of a sudden I knew, I felt the Holy Spirit tell me to go outside. And so unfortunately he told me after everyone had already sat down after worship. So, and I was dead middle in like the back third row. So I had to like scooch out and hit the knees of every single human being that had sat down, um, which was embarrassing. But I, <laughs> Not important to the story, but I wanted some empathy. Uh, the, and so, thank you. <laughs> the, I, and so I, I walked outside and I turned to the right and I saw this glowing light and the uh, parking lot. There's a gravel parking lot. Now it's a paved parking lot, I think. But um, So I walked up this little hill to this gravel parking lot and as soon as I do, this uh, angel comes out of the sky and falls down in front of me and uh, is covered in head to toe with a uh, fire. 
And um, like I said, I've been a seeing angels since I was a little kid, and it's just had been kind of a normal part of my life. And so I'd always thought kind of before this, like, man, it's a little weird that so often in Scripture, the angels start their message with, be not afraid, because, you know, angels aren't really that scary. You know, they're, they're good, and they're kind and, and loving. But uh, when, I, um, when I saw this angel, I suddenly understood just a little bit about that. Um, it's not because he was like mean or scary or something like that, but because as, as he stood there in front of me, I could almost feel this heat radiating off of him. And it was, it was like if you've ever been out camping on a cold winter and like a coal gets kicked out of the middle of the fire and you can see the heat radiating off of it in the, in the cold air. It's, and it, the only feeling was almost like, um, man, this, this angel has experienced God in a way that I have not yet. And I can feel the heat of that, of that uh, distance, of, of that uh, closeness radiating off of him. And it was scary because it was powerful. Again, not scary and it's going to get you, but scary in the way when you look down Niagara Falls. Of That is a lot of power. And so um, he had a couple things he wanted to talk about. And... Um, I uh, talked about this place called Beth Atlanta that I was supposed to go to, and that's a long story. Um, obviously, that part came true. Um, <laughs> and uh, flash forward to one specific part. I've shared this story a couple times, but it's uh, he was showing me this scroll. And on this scroll, there was this, uh, when he opened it up, there was this one blue line, and it was just kind of moving across this, this just empty, empty space. And I saw these other lines come from the top, come from the bottom, and they would merge with this line and go this way and go that way and crisscross and split off and go in all different directions. It was constantly changing and moving and readjusting. And just, just going this way, going that way. And, asked, and I asked what it was, and the angel said, this is the plan of God as it relates to your life. I knew that central line was, was me because that was the perspective I was, I was seeing it from. And all these other lines were all the relationships and people and, and individuals uh, that were coming in and out of my life. And every little divergence point and split was choices that they had to go this way, to go that way, to, to leave or to stay or to, to, to connect, to not to connect, and all the little choices in between that. And it was all just moving and adjusting and changing constantly. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of folks who will talk about, like, okay, God is sovereign, but he seems to have given us free will. Does that mean, like, he already knows our choices and created this little, like, you know, ping pong situation that just kind of bounces us in the right direction? How does that work? And I, I tend to think that either, almost any way we look at that is our very limited humor, uh, human perspective um, looking at the mind of an eternal being. <laughs> And so we can maybe understand a little bit of it at a time. <laughs> and so I had that sense when I was looking at this. I couldn't, uh, it brought up the questions in my mind of free will, which seemed to be happening, but also sovereignty because God knew what was going to happen. And even though I don't feel like I got any clarity or revelation on that subject, what I could see was that his purposes and his plans could more than handle our free will. <laughs> And so this was happening and going and diverting and going like that. And as I looked at it more, I felt like I could understand a bit more and a bit more and a bit more. It's like when you, um, you know, if, you, if you're ever learning how, to, how an engine works or something like that, like at first you open it up and it's just like, wow, that sure is moving. Um, you know, 
but as you start to learn the process, the uh, how you know how everything works, all of a sudden it just bit, you maybe don't understand the whole thing, but bits but bit by bit it starts to come together and make sense. You know, and I felt like it was starting to come together a little bit, but I couldn't quite get the whole thing. And you know, because I didn't know what else to say, I just said, "Yeah, that looks complicated." <laughs> and he, the angel, laughed at me. And then he had been holding the scroll like this, and he turned it and laid it flat so that it was like sitting like a table between us. And he grabbed the bottom of it and pulled, and what had been a two-dimensional image uh, on a scroll was now a three-dimensional image that was moving in, out, sideways, backward, forward, and all these different, different, uh, different directions, and trying to even begin to comprehend how the bit I understood applied to a three-dimensional model of this version of God's plan made my head want to explode. Um, so I just closed my eyes. <laughs> That's a good trick. Um, the, so I, that conversation uh, went on for a little while. And years later, I was thinking about that day. I was just sitting in my quiet time one day. And I asked the Holy Spirit, what was the deal with that suddenly turning three-dimensional? And he said, oh, yeah. You were seeing all the relationships as they relate to my plan for your life. And when, you, when it pulled down, that was all of the internal, emotional, mental gymnastics that every single one of those people do before they even make a decision about what they're going to do or how they're going to respond. And all the ways those other choices affect their heart and soul. And I suddenly realized that my idea of God's interaction and awareness of his plan is not just about what we do. He sees even deeper than that to the internal journey that every single one of us has. And he is aware of that, watching that. And his plan is more than capable of handling your internal world. Thank you. Um, So, the Bible says many times, in many different ways, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And this concept of the fear of the Lord is bigger than just being scared of God. I would, I would phrase it myself as being aware of the magnitude of who God is. And understand, and, that, and the invitation to trust that. You know, this is a real quick shotgun thing, but if you scope out and look at the a uh, wider narrative of the book of Job, everyone's favorite book. Um, <laughs> a, a righteous man receives an, uh, uh, a, a, uh, what looks like punishment, what looks like harm, bad things come into his life. And the question that all of these uh, guys that come up to him are proposing is, I know that God is just, and I know that his justice looks like he does good things to people who do good and bad things to people who do bad. So therefore, you must have done something bad. There's a lot more nuance in there, but if you're gonna take an overall argument, person after person after person brings a version of that narrative. At the end of the narrative, helpfully, God shows up and doesn't answer that question. He doesn't say what his justice looks like. He doesn't say, if you do good things, good things will happen to you. He doesn't say, if you do bad things, bad things will happen to you. He basically, in a beautiful, poetic, worth studying way, I'm God, and you're not. 
The invitation is not maybe how we would see that in harsh master terms of get down there, you, but instead an invitation for trust. And the end of the story of Job is the result of that. And so we all have an opportunity and we all need humility. And what fear of the Lord is, is for me at least, is recognizing there is no part of his character, there's no part of his nature that I fully understand yet. And I probably never will in my lifetime. So I always need to remain humble in my influenceability to deeper understanding of his nature, deeper understanding of his character. Otherwise, I'm likely to experience what that last servant did, which is a false perspective that leads to me missing out on what was intended to be a gift of trust. Does that make sense? All right, let's, let's stand up real quick. So again, God, like we, like we do so many times, we just humble ourselves in your presence, Lord. We, we, we just humble ourselves in your presence. We hold up our ideas. We hold up our opinions. We hold up our convictions. And, and we hold them up to you and no one else, Lord. We, we invite you to reveal yourself. We invite you to, to bring adjustment. We invite you to, to show us the places where we've seen you as a harsh master, seen you as someone we have to perform for, See, seeing you as someone whom if we don't do a good enough job, we're going to get in trouble. So it's better to just, just lay low and, and hide out and, and just, you know, make sure you don't lose what he's got at the very least, you know. And instead, we recognize that you have given us your trust. You have given us power. You have given us authority. You have given us uh, uh, talents. You have given us minus. You have given us even just the fact that we are standing in this room breathing is an act of trust from you toward us. And we receive and recognize that for what it is. And so I just pray for every single one of us, my, myself, every single person in this, in this room, that we just live in an, a constantly growing revelation of your character and nature, especially as it is directed at us, Lord, so that we could not only accomplish beautiful things for your kingdom, not, not only perpetuate your kingdom wherever we go, but also protect the intimacy and connection that you paid such a high price for us to have. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Thanks, guys. Thank you for listening to the Sermon of the Week. To stay connected with Bethel Atlanta, visit www.bethelatlanta.com.